My Grace Point, it is so good to see you. We're so glad you're here today, whether you're joining us from the Nashville area or somewhere around the United States or anywhere in the world. We're so thrilled to have you with us. This morning, we're continuing our series called Bible Stories for Grownups. Uh, we've been exploring stories in the Synoptic Gospels, which is just another way of saying Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we're bringing our grown-up questions, our grown-up confusions, our grown-up curiosities back to some of these texts that many of us have heard our entire lives. Um, and one of the things that happens is that often we've heard these stories when we were younger, and as we've grown and our lenses for so many things have changed, our lens for the Bible hasn't changed. And as the Apostle Paul himself said in 1 Corinthians 13, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. But when I became an adult, I put childish ways behind me. There's nothing wrong with an approach to the Bible that is childlike when we're kids. But as we grow, our understandings and interpretations can grow with us and should grow with us. And that's actually a good and faithful thing. And the story we're going to look at today is a parable Jesus tells in Matthew 22. There's a much nicer version of it in Luke chapter 14. Um, but I figured we should just dive right into the more difficult version. And to be honest, I as I read this story and reread this story, I kept asking myself one really important question. What in the world was I thinking picking this story? I think somebody suggested it. Somebody said, hey, would you mind to talk about Jesus in this wedding banquet, or this wedding party? Uh, and I said, sure. And then I dove into it and started reading it, and I was really, really disturbed by what I found. Um, and uh, as the process went on for me, I think I've come to a place where I, I have some, maybe what might be some interesting things to say about it. So I'm excited to share it with you. But before we jump into the parable in Luke, Matthew 22, let's just talk about parables in general. The word parable in the Greek language just means to cast alongside. It's essentially placing two things side by side for the purpose of comparing them or contrasting them, saying this is like this or this is not actually like this. Or in some ways, it's a way of saying, if you know about this thing over here, well, this thing over here is kind of similar to that. If you've been around church for a minute, you've probably heard this phrase, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And I actually want to flip that on its head a bit. I want to turn that around. And what I want to say is a parable is a heavenly story with an earthly meaning. Here's what I mean. Jesus used parables to describe and explain what he meant by the word or phrase, the kingdom of God. Or in the Gospel of Matthew, it's the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is trying to explain what is this kingdom and how does it interact with the world and, and what's actually going on with this imagery. And that seems to be the key to the parables. They describe this vision Jesus has of something called the kingdom of God. And for Jesus, the kingdom of God is something that is inbreaking into the world, something that is accessible right here and right now, if we only had eyes to see and ears to hear. And so when Jesus talks about the kingdom, he's talking often about a world of compassion and justice, a world of equity, a world where everybody has enough. And he does that by comparing it to something that people would understand in their own lives. A lot of Jesus' stories involve agriculture because he's doing his ministry um, among the agrarian poor and uh, mostly in Galilee during his life. And, and so this is what we're talking about by parable. Something that says, hey, you know about this, but let me use that to, to explain this other thing that may be a little bit unfamiliar or mysterious. Now, I, I need to give a disclaimer before we jump into this. I am a straight, white, cisgender, American, Christian male. And those are all layers and lenses that cause me to miss the subversive message of Jesus and the subversive message of the Bible. It makes interpreting the Bible a really hard task for me. 
I've had to learn to question my initial readings and my initial interpretations of the Bible because they have been born out of a privilege. And so when I approach the Bible, and this is especially true of parables, because I tend to have been taught parables and have tended to interpret interpretate, that's not even a word, interpret them as being these stories that extol the virtues of capitalism or reinforce this image of God as an angry ruler who punishes whomever might be uh, stepping out of line and not doing the right thing. But what if, that, what if that way of reading the parables actually works against what Jesus is trying to say? What if that way of seeing, what, what if the lens I just by default bring to the world and to the Bible and all my experiences, what if that lens actually causes me when I'm not aware of it to miss the subversive, challenging, and in so many ways, hope-giving message that Jesus offers in his stories. And so today we're gonna listen to this parable from Matthew chapter 22. Before we hear the parable, before Carol reads it for us, I wanna just ask you to do this. As you listen to this story, and as you meet the characters in this story, just think about who they might represent. Think about who they might represent. And what would this parable, because it begins by talking about this, what might this parable be trying to teach us about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven? And so let's think about those questions. Let's think about who are these characters and what might this parable be saying about the kingdom? And then we'll come back after we hear it and we'll dive in. The scripture lesson today is from Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Jesus responded by speaking again in parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding party for his son. He sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding party, but they didn't want to come. Again, he sent other servants and said to them, tell those who have been invited, look, the meal is all prepared. I butchered the oxen and the fatted cattle. Now everything is ready. Come to the wedding party. But they paid no attention and went away, some to their fields, others to their businesses. The rest of them grabbed his servants, abused them, and killed them. The king was angry. He sent his soldiers to destroy those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his servants, The wedding party is prepared, but those who were invited are not worthy. Therefore, go to the roads at the edge of the town and invite everyone you find to the wedding party. Then those servants went to the roads and gathered everyone they found, both evil and good. The wedding party was full of guests. Now when the king came in and saw the guests, he spotted a man who wasn't wearing wedding clothes. He said to him, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? But he was speechless. Then the king said to his servants, Tie his hands and feet and throw him out into the farthest darkness. People there will be weeping and grinding their teeth. Many people are invited, but few people are chosen. Right, see, I told you, that is a difficult story. It's a story full of violence. It's, just, it's, just, it's one of those stories that we definitely probably definitely shouldn't be reading to our children, right? That's a really, really tough story. And let me give you just a little context about where this story happens in Matthew's gospel. This parable takes place during Holy Week, and it's part of a controversy that Jesus is generating. Jesus's actions and teachings have started up a, a controversy. And one of the things that happens out of this is Jesus gets asked by the temple establishment, where are you getting the authority to do this? 
essentially who died and made you boss? Who gave you the platform? Who gave you the ability? Who gave you uh, the opportunity? Like, why are you questioning? Why are you pushing back? Why are you challenging? Why are you saying things that fall outside of uh, sort of the accepted understanding we're, we're advocating? And of course, we need to remember this. Holy Week is the week that leads to Jesus' execution by the state. And we have to ask the question, how might that knowledge, this is where we're headed, toward the cross, toward the death of Jesus. How might that frame and help us understand what might be happening in this parable? So I just wanna walk through a few of the phrases in this story that have just jumped out to me. And to begin with, it's the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. Where is the kingdom seen in this parable? Through whom do we see the kingdom come? Whose actions are kingdom actions and whose actions are not kingdom actions? And for just a minute, let's not assume we know. Let's not assume that the powerful person, the power broker, the king, the, the person who has all the authority, let's not assume in the story that that person is by default the person who is bringing the kingdom. Let's just say, let's leave it up for grabs for just a moment that maybe just maybe our initial impulse, my initial impulse to see the king in a story like this and say, well, that's clearly God. That maybe just maybe that impulse is wrong. Actually, as I was working through this parable, I ran across a story that I've heard. I actually have heard this story in sermons growing up, but it's a story about a pastor who was doing a children's sermon, and uh, she brought the children up front, and she had them gathered around, and she started describing. She said, I'm going to describe something. I want you to tell me what I'm describing. And she said, this animal lives in, or this, this thing, not animal, she didn't give it away. This thing lives in the trees, and this thing has a big furry tail, and this thing eats nuts and this thing. And she's describing and describing and nobody's, none of the kids are guessing anything. They all just have this baffled look on their face. And finally, at the end, one kid raises his hand and says, look, I know that the answer to this question is probably Jesus, but that really sounds like a squirrel, right? <laughs> and so the point of the story is we often assume Jesus is always the answer. And we've heard that. People wear t-shirts, they make signs, it's a thing. Jesus is the answer. But How's that always, it's, it just isn't always true. Sometimes Jesus isn't the answer. And actually sometimes saying Jesus is the answer can cause us to miss what Jesus is doing in a story like this. So let's not assume we know. Let's not assume that the powerful person in the story represents God or that the powerful person in the story represents Jesus. And let's just ask, where is the kingdom seen in this parable? Whose actions bring the kingdom and whose actions resist the kingdom? Who is the most Christ-like character? in this particular story. So the, this, the kingdom of heaven is like, in the next line, a king who prepared a wedding party for his son. Now the temptation, again, is to say, ah, king, that's God. Ah, son, that's, I mean, we have the dynamic duo being named in the story. We have God and we have son. This is God the father. This is Jesus the son. And that's exactly, after all, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. That's what's going on here, right? The king is throwing a wedding party for his son. But let's listen for a moment to how this king behaves because how this king behaves really, really matters. Because when the king says the party is ready, the invited guests refuse to come. And listen to this line from the story. The king was angry. He sent his soldiers to destroy those murderers that killed some of his servants and set their city on fire. Is that what God is like? Is that how God does business? 
God extends an invitation, and if you don't accept it, you get thrown in the fire. For so many of us, that's the image we grew up with, right? You're invited. You're welcome. Come. But if you don't, and there's actually this, this image, we're going to put it on the screen, this meme that has circulated on the internet. It's sort of one of these, we had a painting like, or not a painting, it was a wall hanging like this growing up in my house, but it said Jesus outside of a door. It's supposed to represent the door of your heart, the door of my heart, knocking. And this particular meme has Jesus saying, let me in, knocking on the door, let me in. The person inside says, why? Jesus says, so I can save you. The person inside says, from what? And Jesus says, from what I'm going to do to you if you don't let me inside, right? Think about the logic behind this understanding that God wants to save us from God. Is that really What's going on? This whole idea that God offers you this free gift of salvation, but if you don't have the right response, if you don't accept, if you don't believe, if you don't, look, whatever that language is, if you don't do the right thing to take this free gift, then you're gonna be sent to hell forever and ever and ever and ever. That theology is actually born out of bad readings of parables like this one, where we put God in this character of the king who wreaks this havoc and say, this is what God is like and this is what the kingdom is. Of God is like. And I just don't think that's how Jesus would ever imagine that this story would be taken. I can't imagine that Matthew would have ever imagined we would have read the story this way. Because this king in this story isn't like God. This king in this story is more like Herod. This king in this story is more like the Roman Caesar. This king in this story is more like any dictator who has ever lived throughout human history where people don't give the response the dictator wants. And so they send in their armies to crush people and to destroy their lives. Is that the God that we meet in the life and work of Jesus? Is that the God we experience in the story of Jesus? Now listen to this next part. This is really strange. There's this wide invitation then that's spread out. Anybody, the king says, okay, the invited guests won't come. Go invite anybody and everybody, no restrictions. And so they go out and invite anybody and everybody, and anybody and everybody comes in. And I just want to say, of course anybody and everybody comes in. They've already seen what happens when you resist. If you say no to the king, you get destroyed. If you reject the invitation, you get punished. And so for, these folks aren't coming to this wedding feast out of their own free will. They're not coming out of excitement. They're not coming out of joy. They're coming because they know that to resist the invitation will mean certain destruction. And then with all these folks crowded in, what happens? Now the king came in and saw the guests. He spotted a man who wasn't wearing wedding clothes. He said to him, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? But he, the, the friend, the man without the wedding clothes, but he was speechless. Then the king said to his servants, tie his hands and feet and throw him out into the farthest darkness. People there will be weeping and grinding their teeth. Many people are invited, but few people are chosen. Do you see why this story is so tough? Conventional reading. God is the king. Jesus is the son. The person who gets thrown out, not wearing the appropriate clothes, are people who haven't had the right response to the invitation. They're bound up and they're thrown out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I want to offer a different interpretation, an interpretation of the story that I think is grounded in the character of the divine that we meet in the life and teaching of Jesus. And I want to give you sort of the, the big part up front. I believe that this person in the story who shows up to the wedding and properly dressed, person who shows up without wedding clothes, I believe that that is the Christ figure in this story. Not the son, not the king. 
the person in this story who we are meant to understand as being the Christ figure is this person at the end who's improperly dressed for a wedding, who ends up being bound up and thrown out. And the fact that the unnamed attendee here wasn't wearing wedding clothes is more interesting than it is on the surface because what we know from, from history is that the custom would have been to provide every guest who needed a wedding tunic to wear so that they could put it over their street clothes and they could come in and be a part of the festivities. So to, to be at a wedding like this and to not have the appropriate clothing isn't because you didn't have access to it. It's because you walked past it. It's because you had access and you, den- you, were, you rejected it. You denied it. You chose not to participate. You, you came into the wedding and said, I'm not wearing the wedding tunic. I'm wearing what I've got on. And when this man in the story is questioned about why he's not wearing the tunic, this wedding garment, he's speechless. And this is actually a theme Matthew brings out in the story of Jesus. Listen to these. This is a couple texts from um, after Jesus has been arrested and has been put on trial. In Matthew 26, the high priest stood and said to Jesus, aren't you going to respond to the testimony these people have brought against you? So Jesus is being accused. Aren't you going to say something for yourself? Aren't you going to defend yourself? The next verse. But Jesus was silent. Matthew 27, Jesus was brought before the governor, Pilate. The governor said, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, that's what you say. But he didn't answer when the chief priests and elders accused him. Then Pilate said, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But he didn't answer, not even a single word, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now let's go back to the, remember the context of the story. Holy Week, Jesus is about to meet his fate on the cross. He's about to be executed by the Roman Empire. A state execution publicly. What some historians call crucifixion is state-sponsored terrorism. That's where this story is going. Jesus is about to be bound up and thrown out and executed by the state. Here's what I think is going on in this story. The man who shows up at the end without the appropriate wedding clothing, I think, that's supposed, I think we're supposed to see that as a, a sort of a, a representation of Jesus and a representation of what Jesus is doing. Jesus is resisting the empire. Jesus is refusing to collaborate with Rome. He's opting out of the system. He's refusing to play ball. Insert your metaphor here. Jesus is essentially saying, this whole system is corrupt, and I refuse to be part of perpetuating a corrupt system. I will not play ball. I will not wear that wedding garment. I'm coming in dressed as I'm not going to participate. I mean, how might our understanding of Jesus' parable shift if we began to see Jesus not in the story as the powerful? How would our understandings of the parable shift if we went into these stories and looked for Jesus among the powerless? How might our understanding of these stories shift if we stopped looking for the people who are being praised for doing the right thing and we start looking for Jesus in the place of somebody who's being rejected and cast out? Why is it that we so desperately want to identify Jesus with the powerful and the violent as opposed to the marginalized and oppressed in his stories? Jesus' entire ministry has been focused on good news to the poor. Jesus' entire ministry has been focused on providing food for the hungry. His entire ministry has been focused on providing healing for those who have been left out and discarded. This has been his entire work. And then somehow he starts telling stories where he casts God as like, a violent dictator and that Jesus somehow participates in that violent system, that's exact opposite 
of what's going on. And this last line, which is the real stunner, many people are invited, but few are chosen. They're about, a, I mean, unless you're, unless you're a Calvinist, and, and I mean, we'll, we'll pray for you, but like if you're not a Calvinist, and like that's where you, like what do you do with that? Many are invited, but few are chosen. What if we don't see that as something God is saying? It's, that's a quote from the king in the story. What if that's not a quote from God? What if that's not a quote from Jesus? What if this is a statement about how empire works? Empire does what empire wants. Empire can cast out whoever the empire wants to cast out. If you don't do what the empire wants, there's a cross with your name on it. Do you see how this shift and, and, and where we understand Jesus and who we understand God to be and what we understand the kingdom to be in these stories. What if Jesus is saying the kingdom is like this person who refuses to participate in a corrupt system? This person who opts out, who won't put on. I mean, you ever remember seeing, and maybe you didn't experience it because I don't even know if this is a thing anymore, but you ever gone to a restaurant where they have like a jacket policy and if you come in without a jacket, they have some loners? Like that, that's what, would, this is the story, right? And it's like Jesus comes in and he goes, I'm not wearing that blazer. I refuse to participate in the system. That's what's going on here. And this is how Rome does business. You resist the empire, you die. So the question most of us want to end up with always about a story like, in it, like this, where the kingdom is being aligned, not with the powerful, but with the powerless, where the kingdom is being aligned, not with the actions of those who have all the authority, but where the kingdom is being aligned with those who are being victimized and oppressed by the system. What do we do with that? So I just want to share a few things that, that jumped out for me, and I'd be interested to hear from you what jumped out for you. But I'll begin with this. We desperately need to reimagine our image of God, and we don't need, not just for Christians, the world needs us to reimagine our image of God. The image of God that we derive from bad readings of the Bible has been used to defend genocides, slavery, and abuse of every kind. The whole world, even people who would check the box that they are not religious or not spiritual, they have no affiliation or tradition, everybody in the world would benefit from a Christian tradition that had a better, more compassionate, more kind, more empathetic image and understanding of God. God cannot have victims because God stands with victims. God cannot be a victimizer because God casts God's lot with victims. God cannot oppress because God hears the cry and stands with the oppressed. If suddenly this God who hears the cry of the oppressed is now oppressing, this God is no better. This God is no better than Caesar. This God is no better than Herod. This God is no better than any dictator who has ever lived in human history. And this God should be left to the, to the junk heap of history. And yet the God we see in Jesus, in our tradition, when we have the most beautiful glimpses, is the God who hears the cry of the victim, the God who hears the cry of the oppressed, and the God who sides with them in their oppression. We've taken this maxim that God doesn't change to mean that our understanding of God can't change. What if that claim, by the way, what if the claim God doesn't change, what if that claim, and it's sort of found in the Bible in places, what if that claim that God doesn't change actually means God doesn't get worse? Like, what if that's ultimately what's being argued? Like, whatever your understanding of God is right now, however incomplete it may be, the reality will never be worse than that. 
right? God, God's not gonna get worse over time. Now, what does happen over time is we learn and we grow and we have experiences which really, really matter and our understanding and interpretation shift and our understanding of God shifts. And, and of course, that, that should always be moving towards something more just, more compassionate, more loving, more kind, more like we should, that, that's the direction we move. We'll never move backwards and say, oh, we were wrong about God. God's infinitely worse than we imagined. If anything, God is infinitely better than we could possibly begin to comprehend. Our idea of God being love perhaps isn't even the tip of the iceberg for that reality that we're calling love. And this is really at its core an idea that's been wrestled with and embraced by both scripture and our tradition. And it's the work to which we are called to keep moving forward, to keep growing in our understanding, to keep growing in our interpretation, to keep growing in our learning, not only of texts, but our understanding of God, God's self. Our understanding of God should grow and change. At one point in my life, I saw God like the king in this story. And where I find God in this story now is in the person being exiled and, and mistreated and oppressed by the system. And I hope my understanding of God continues to grow and shift in that direction in ways I can't even begin to imagine now. So I think we, have, we need a reframed image of God, a reimagined understanding of God. And it would be good not just for the Christian faith, it would be good for the whole world. And second, I think we need a reimagining and reframing of where we find Jesus. Because Jesus, according to Jesus, Jesus will always be found among the marginalized and oppressed. And Christians, we have paid so much lip service to Jesus' teaching about whatever, you know, wherever the least of these are, that's where Jesus is. But then we tend to interpret the Bible and construct theologies that actually go in the opposite direction. We create these theologies where Jesus is not aligned with the poor and the oppressed. We create these theologies where Jesus is saying to people who are in need and who are hurting and who've been wounded that, that they just haven't believed right enough and they haven't been faithful enough and that they just haven't measured up to the unbelievable standards of the kingdom. And the reality is that is not the Jesus we meet in these stories. It's a Jesus of a bad interpretation of these stories. Let's just say this, any version of Jesus that agrees with the ways and methods of empire is probably one that has been constructed by people living and benefiting from the empire. I just wanna acknowledge that. That for years and years and years, I've read these stories in ways that prop up empire. I've read Jesus as being pro-empire. It's because that has benefited me in immeasurable ways. And I no longer want to bring that kind of lens to the Bible because it has hurt and wounded and oppressed far too many people. So we need to reimagine where we find Jesus in these stories. And then I want to just come back around to this idea of authority. Um, because this whole story, like Jesus tells this story as a response to a question about where do you get this authority? Here, here's what they say in Matthew 21. When Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and elders, the people came to him and he was teaching. They asked, what kind of authority do you have for doing these things? Who gave you the authority? Now, here's what's really interesting. In, um, in the translation we read today, it's something like Jesus told them another parable. The actual Greek of the text begins with Jesus answered. When Jesus tells this story, it is an answer to the question about authority. Where does your authority come from? What if this is the answer? What if Jesus, or at least Matthew in his telling of the story, what if Jesus is saying that Jesus' authority is grounded in the fact that he isn't collaborating with the empire, he's resisting it? What if what's being said is, you wanna know if Jesus is saying, you wanna know why I have authority to do this? Because this establishment is collaborating with our oppressors. 
and I am leading a resistance movement against that collaboration. What if Jesus can say, because if you, if you read the Gospels, every time Jesus is asked a question about money, he doesn't have a coin, or he's asked a question about engagement with empire, and he, he has this really subversive way of engaging it. It's because Jesus is doing something completely different. And it's almost like Jesus saying, my authority is grounded in the fact that I'm putting my very life where my mouth is. I'm showing up to the wedding without the wedding garment. I'm saying, I will not be a part of a corrupt and unjust system that is just destroying lives. You know, I think the church writ large has an authority problem. Because I hear all the time Christians on TV and on social media lamenting the growing lack of cultural influence the church has, specifically here in the West. And, and yet, time and time again over the generations, the church has just refused to lead. We've spent generations playing catch up on all the significant issues, whether it's issues around uh, genocide, whether it's issues around abolition, whether it's issues around the, uh, the affirmation that women are capable and have the abilities and the calling to lead, or whether it's been around the inclusion of an affirmation of the LGBTQ plus community, or whether right now it's the refusal of large sections of the Christian church to just say a really simple and powerful phrase that black lives matter. The church has refused to lead. And this has been true throughout American history and in times throughout world history. And when the church fails to lead to, toward liberation, abolition, equality, and equity, when the church fails to show up, the spirit doesn't. When the church fails to show up and lead, the spirit who is not confined to the walls of a church or to the website of a church or to a YouTube page of a church, this spirit who is wild and beyond our control, she has always gone and gotten the work done anyway. And I think this is perhaps why the church is so jealous of culture. Because while we've been sitting back counting the economic cost, counting the people cost, counting what it might cost us as leaders in the church, fellow pastors to stand up and say the right thing, look, I think most pastors know the truth. They are just too scared to admit it. And we have not just failed to lead, we've refused to lead. And when the church refuses to lead on issues of justice, and look, I've heard all my life, oh, I would have marched with King. If you're not marching now, you would not have marched with King. If you can't say Black Lives Matter today, you wouldn't have said it then. And the reality is if the church won't lead, the spirit will find a place for this leadership to happen. And I think the church is deeply jealous of culture when culture has gotten ahead of the church. And unfortunately, culture has beaten the church to the punch on almost all of these significant issues of human rights. And with churches like Grace Point, we desperately wanna be a part of seeing that change. A couple years ago, I was at Wild Goose Festival and I'm so excited it's back on this year in September. I cannot wait for Wild Goose. A couple years ago, I was standing by the main stage and caught the end of uh, Reverend Dr. William Barber III's sermon. And he was on fire. And before he literally dropped the mic and walked off the stage, which was epic, he said something like this. And this is a paraphrase, but it's, it's really close. He said, we can be priests of the empire or we can be prophets of God, but we can't be both. And in that moment, I heard, in, I just felt in me, this is the word of the Lord. 
This is the challenge to the church. Will we stand next to the ones taking off, not wearing the wedding garments and saying, we will not participate in a corrupt system. Don't care what the cost is. Don't care what the economic cost is. Don't, don't care what the popularity cost is. Don't care what the political cost is. We will refuse to collaborate with people who are perpetuating injustice in the world. We will stand up. We will march. We'll use our voice. We'll use our influence. We will do whatever it takes. We will stand alongside those who are resisting oppression and marginalization and abuse. And that's where the church should be found. And in beautiful moments in our history, it's where we have been found. But far too often in this particular country that I'm sitting in right now, we have been absent when looked for. When I heard Dr. Barber say that, we can be priests of the empire, we can be prophets of God, but we can't be both. Somewhere deep inside me, I knew that this is the word of the Lord. Somewhere deep inside me, I knew that this was the challenge, that this was the call. Grace Point, may we hear it. May we embrace it. May we receive it. May we enact it. May we embody it in the very way we live our lives, in the very way we live out our community, communal life. And may we trust that standing, standing up with those who are not dressed for the wedding is actually where we find Jesus all along. Amen. Thank you.